Well, good evening to you, church. It's a joy to see you here tonight uh, to worship the Lord together and see many of your family and friends here with you. And uh, we're going to spend some time on this Good Friday looking at the message of the cross. And for that, we're going to look in Isaiah. Uh, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to read 52, 13 through Isaiah 53. That's where we'll be tonight in God's word. Now, it's a, approximately 700 years before the birth of the man who would be called Jesus of Nazareth. The northern kingdom of Israel is about to be conquered in God's divine judgment by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah is not all too far behind them. And it's at this time that God raised up yet more prophets to warn his chosen people of what he had covenanted, covenanted with them to do, and what they had covenanted with him to do, and how they'd miserably failed. And one of those prophets was, of course, Isaiah, whose name means Yahweh saves. In his book, uh, there seems to be thematically represented uh, the entire theology of both the Old and the New Testaments. And in it, in the book of Isaiah, God reveals again to Israel how they had fallen short of the holiness that he'd called them to, their sinfulness, and exactly how, as well, he intended to fix that problem. God had made an unconditional covenant, remember, with Israel. For an offspring, capital O, offspring, from Abraham's seed that would bless the nations of the earth. He made a covenant of a kingdom that would last forever, and a king who would sit on the throne. And the people of Israel wanted the offspring. They wanted the kingdom. Uh, they welcomed the idea of their king. But the problem was, uh, they most often thought that these things, the king and the kingdom, that those things were their greatest needs. And therefore, they thought their greatest problem was that they didn't have them. That they didn't have their king. That they didn't have their kingdom. And the problem is, their greatest problem, and our greatest problem, is not that we don't have a kingdom. It's not that we don't have a king. Our greatest problem is not that we aren't the king or queen of our own domains. Our greatest problem is not the oppression that comes on us by other kings or other people. Our greatest problem is not that we don't think highly enough of ourselves or that we lack sufficient support and encouragement from relationships from those around us. As important as those things might seem to be, they're not our greatest problem. Israel's greatest problem and our greatest problem is our sin. It's our sin. We have all denied and disobeyed our maker. God is going to keep his covenant. It's unconditional. There will be a kingdom. There will be a king. But our holy God will not have fellowship with sin. If this promised kingdom is, is going to have any people in it, something amazing is going to have to happen. Because no one in all of Israel... From all time, not a single person in this room today, not a single person on the face of the earth 
could stand before our holy judge and creator of the universe and be acquitted. Not possible. We are all guilty and we all fall short. This is our greatest problem. Our sin. Our sin against God. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, over 700 years before the birth of Jesus, tells us exactly how he would solve our great problem. Exactly how he would save us from the consequence of our sin against him. So we're looking in Isaiah chapter 52. Uh, You have it on your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you tonight. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn together with me. Isaiah 52 verse 13. Says this, behold, my servant, so we're going to learn about the Lord's servant, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Uh, These terms, high and lifted up and exalted, are used throughout Isaiah to refer to God. Those are characteristics of God. Uh, God would have a servant who was himself deity. High and lifted up here does not refer to the cross yet, but to the lofty position of possessing majesty and glory that extends beyond the heavens. Verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle could be startle. Uh, Think about the way you jump back when you're surprised by getting splashed with water unexpectedly. You're startled by it. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him out of shock. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The Gentile nations of the earth will hear of this servant and all that transpired as though unannounced. It'll be a surprise to them. Why? And then chapter 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, been revealed? It's saying here, why will everybody be shocked? Why? For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This plant, this servant, will grow up in a place where people would not expect it to. Where people would not expect him to. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him or that anybody would want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The idea in these two verses is that the servant would be treated as though he was diseased. Like the leper who everyone wants to stay clear from. This servant would be repulsive to people, treated like a diseased man who had had what he got coming to him as some sort of divine judgment from God. Uh, Remember the question from the Gospels, why was this man born blind? Because of his sin or his parents? 
an assumed judgment from God. Except that this divine judgment, the servant bore. This judgment would be the disease of the people placed on him. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. What is our greatest problem? Why was he pierced? Why was he crushed? Our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This healing is carried over from the disease or the health analogy from the context here. So this verse uh, says what our greatest need is, right? It's our sin. This servant would not suffer wounds so that we could be physically healed, but so that our sin could be removed. Verse 6 says, all we, and this is us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I have rebelled and gone my way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, undeservedly so. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's true, isn't it? An animal doesn't know to protest. <laughs> to protest on his way to death. They don't know. They don't know any better. They're animals. But the servant would have known how and why to protest, to state a case for himself, for his innocence, but he wouldn't do it. It wouldn't happen. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment, unjust judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, his people that lived amongst him, who considered? Meaning no one seemed to care about him. It says, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In the Hebrew, this, this could have been translated, the, the second and in verse 9, it could have been translated as but. As if to say, they were going to bury his dead body with the wicked, but instead he was buried in the grave of a rich man. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. And there was no sin found in the servant. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, an offering, an atonement. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These are words of blessing. These are words of blessing. Okay? These are words of blessing. How could God... Think about this now with me, okay? How could God bless a man buried in the grave with many days? And the idea of offspring. Okay, of course we're thinking of offspring being the fulfillment of the covenant. How could that blessing be given to somebody... The ability to see the will of the Lord come to fulfillment. 
How could these things be unless, of course, that servant rose from the dead? That's a possibility. Come back on Sunday, right? Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. So he'll be aware of what he's doing. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, The servant will bear the sin of those who will then be declared righteous. The offering of the servant, the, the atonement that the servant provides in his death, will be substituted on behalf of the sinners atoned for. This is called substitutionary atonement. The righteous one being punished as if guilty so that the guilty can be declared innocent. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. These verses promise the servant, that his sacrifice will not go wasted. That there will be many that will be saved with whom he will share the spoils of victory. Joint heirs. Then it finishes the chapter with this because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Uh, this intercession this, in this verse here is a word that refers to military intervention. Think of it like a nation that has no hope in defeating another in war, and then this greater nation swoops in, wins the victory for that smaller, weaker nation. This servant will win the victory over sin for us, a battle that we could never have won. So, this servant, just to recap... This servant that God is presenting uh, through the writing of the prophet Isaiah in the 700s B.C. is going to be co-equal with God. He'll be divinity. He'll be astonishingly bruised and beaten beyond recognition. He will come into and out of the world seemingly unannounced to the Gentile nations due to Israel's response, meaning that they would reject him and not regard him as anything. He will grow up in and come from a place that people do not respect. He will look like a regular person so that people don't understand why he should be followed over any other man. He'll be treated like a disease, as if he were under the judgment of God. He'll be pierced and killed for our sin. The sin of God's people will be placed on him, suffering God's wrath against our sin in his death. He will not make any case before the authorities for his defense when falsely accused. His dead body will be buried in the grave of a rich man. He will be without sin. He'll die a sinner's death as a substitutionary atonement, interceding on behalf of sinful sinful people before a holy God. His righteousness will be given to or put to the account of sinful people, guaranteeing the salvation of of a multitude of people. And he will rise from the dead. Who is this servant? I think it's Jesus. Who else could it be? This, that's right. This is Jesus Christ. Let's just make sure. Okay, hold on here. Let's make sure. 
Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, he claimed this to be true, and the Jewish leaders called him a blasphemer and demanded, demanded his execution. Did they not? Jesus was beaten, spit upon, had his beard ripped out of his face. He was beaten with whips that carried a sharp glass and sharp pieces of metal that tore the flesh off of his back. He had had a crown of thorns put on his head that would have had uh, thorns on them that were about nearly two inches long, and the blood would have poured out of the front and the sides of his head. Unrecognizable. The Jews rejected him as their king. And instead of heralding Jesus' arrival to the world, they enlisted the world's government, Rome, to destroy him through their favorite form of execution, crucifixion. Even though Jesus' birth in Bethlehem and his travels from Egypt and other parts of his childhood fulfilled all their prophecies and scriptures, the Jews disregarded him because he spent much of his childhood in the undesirable town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus' own brothers did not regard him as the Son of God and mocked him for his choices in life, having seen him do miracles. They did not regard him as anything more than their crazy brother. The Pharisees were astounded and offended when Jesus dared to forgive a man of his sins as only God could do such a thing. They saw him as nothing more than a normal man. Jesus was reviled and hated Just like a disease, the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of him quickly and see him judged for his supposed sin of blasphemy and before the start of Passover. They wanted it done, and they wanted it done quickly, and they wanted him out of the way before the sun set so they could worship without guilt. He was pierced for us. In the process of the crucifixion, the nails probably driven just past the wrist between the two bones of the forearm, in order to support his weight. Uh, A lot of people think that the nails went through the middle of the hand, but if his weight was resting on that, there's not enough there in your body to support your weight, and it would have slipped or torn right through. So the nails would have been placed further down on below the wrist so that no bones are broken. There's a nerve that goes right through that part of the body, and so he would have been in excruciating pain. Where does the word excruciating come from? Crucifixion. This is what Jesus endured on the cross. He would have wanted to hang for a time and rest from some of the pain, but he would not have been able to breathe unless he lifted up his body by his feet, which were nailed to the cross between the ankle bone and the heel bone, again, so as to not break any bones and give his body enough support to push up to allow him to breathe. Know that when they put the cross up, they nailed the person of the cross on the ground and lifted the cross up, and that beam of the cross had to slide down into the hole, prepared for it to hold it up, and it had to be deep enough to keep it stable so that it wouldn't fall over. And as that cross fell down into the ground and hit and thud, when it dropped and hit the bottom of that hole, the body responding to the weight of that drop. And their bones, the person who was being crucified, their bones went out of joint. All of the pain, all of the things that we read in Psalm 22, happening at the cross. When the people who were being crucified did not die fast enough, the executioners would break people's legs below the knee to speed up the process so they couldn't push up anymore 
to hasten their death. And Jesus died, it says, before this. And therefore, they never had to break his legs, and that confirmed his death. His death was also confirmed by the spear that entered through his side, probably piercing his heart. When we die, our blood separates into its components, and so it looks like as if blood and water poured out. Again, confirming his death. And if he wasn't already dead, having a spear spear pierced through your side and into your heart would have done the job. He was dead. He was dead. While on the cross, while enduring the pain of crucifixion, Jesus endured something far worse. God's wrath. God's judgment for my sin, for your sin. It was poured out on Christ. Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time and only time ever, Jesus experienced separation of fellowship from God. The wrath of God poured out on the Son of God. The separation that we deserve because of our sin against him. Christ took it. While Jesus was before the Jewish Sanhedrin, we're doing these things in order of, of Isaiah 53. When he was before the Sanhedrin, he was before King Herod, even before the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate, he never tried to defend himself or get out of what was coming. He only confirmed a few things or answered in a vague way and reminded Pilate that God was actually the one in charge. And that the only reason any of this was happening is because it was God's will, not his own, not Pilate's. After Jesus' death, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea asked for his body and gave Jesus his own grave. Jesus' body, his dead body, was entombed in the grave of a rich man. Jesus Christ was a suitable sacrifice because unlike any of us sheep who have gone our own way, he is without sin. He did not deserve to die. He did not deserve judgment. He did not deserve to have God the Father turn his back on him at the cross. But in his death, Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God that we deserve. And because he did, Because he did, you and I can be counted as righteous. We can be forgiven. We can be saved from the penalty of our sin. Eternal separation from God in hell. And not only are we forgiven and mercifully spared from an eternal hell, but God has given to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness. God does not only look at the Christian and declare him or her not guilty. More than that, he declares us righteous. He declares us righteous. The righteousness that Christ lived is now our righteousness. That's what's on our record. And by that record and that grace that God has given to us, we are made to be the children of God, joint heirs with Christ, and given eternal life eternal fellowship with God. That is why today is called Good Friday. Who was Isaiah 
prophesying about? Jesus the Christ. Praise God for his glorious grace. The only question left is how. How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that my sin has been paid for? Romans 10.9 gives us a pretty succinct answer. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word means master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me ask you, do you believe in this account? Do you believe that Jesus did, in fact, die in your place for your sin? Do you believe that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death? Do you believe that this is sufficient to pay your sin, the penalty of your sin and your debt in full? Not in part, but the whole. So that your salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace. The word grace means unmerited favor. You don't earn grace. It ceases to be grace. Salvation, do you believe that it's entirely a gift of God's grace and not some sort of a deal that you have to earn back or supplement with your own efforts? Do you believe that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that the work for your salvation was finished? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Is he the authority? Is he your authority? Or are you a sheep that's going your own way? If so, you need to turn. Repentance is a word that means to change thinking, which changes my actions. Turn, repent, submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord, your God. And if you've never heard this or understood this before, uh, that Christ's death on the cross is the full and final payment for your sin, there's nothing that you can add, that there's nothing that you can or should add, that it's done if God is working in your heart tonight to save you, pray to him. Cry out to him. Ask God to forgive you, to save you, to be your Lord. And know, know this, that his word, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. All of it. And that when he grabs a hold of you, when God makes you his child, no one will ever be able to pluck you out of his hand. Not even you. No one will. Once God has a hold of you, he's never going to let go. So praise God for the cross. Praise God for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God for our salvation in him. 
All glory be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. God, as we consider the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place, I pray that those here that have put their faith and trust in Christ, that are followers of Jesus, God, may our hearts be strengthened and encouraged in the knowledge of the finished work of our salvation, that we are your children, that you have declared us righteous, that we have a relationship with you, that we have a hope and a future and eternal life to live in fellowship and in your presence. God, thank you. Lord, if there would be someone here tonight who has not heard this or has not believed it or who has given some sort of a mental acknowledgement of the facts but has never submitted to you as their Lord, God, I pray that you would work in their heart even now. As your word says that you would Take away their blindness. Give them ears to hear. Give them a heart of flesh. Save them. I pray that you would do that work even now, tonight. And God, as we sing, as we go from here, as we spend time with family and friends this weekend, and as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God, may you be honored and glorified and praised in all these things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.